It's important uh, when we uh, gather for the retreat that we remember those who've gone before us here. There are those who've been on retreat here who've passed away already before the judgment seat of God, and so we have to uh, ask God to have mercy on them. And, uh, please remember, of course, uh, Fritz Eichler from a long time ago. Remember uh, Bill Cicatelli, who was here on retreat some years ago. Bill's passed on. And, uh, of course, uh, please remember uh, Mike, Mike Lorenzano. Some of you no doubt remember Mike from previous retreats, and I uh, cannot say that COVID killed him. It was the protocol, I believe, uh, of those I've anointed in the um, intensive care units and hospitals. It just seems that over and over again, it was the same story with regard to the, the protocols that actually did the killing. That's in my estimation, in any case. Um, Um, I think they're valiant men, and uh, certainly we have very good reason to pray for them. So uh, we remember that also in our prayers. Now, um, you know, the entire nation is somewhat braced for braced for some violence right now. So uh, again, we have to pray for that. I don't hear anything, any rumblings of that going on yet. I suppose they're determining what to do. Um, how to react to this um, <clears throat> but uh, in any case uh, we've been put on notice that we have to be prepared for uh, them having a tantrum okay a leftist tantrum so uh, we'll be prepared for that but pray for uh, uh, you know that this will be a great turning point for our country um, that God will see this as a step we've taken to acknowledge him and his sovereign rights and we'll follow this up with many graces that are so necessary right now we have a whole generation or two uh, that have been raised with the idea of abortion being an option being one of their rights and uh, they've been sort of born and bred in violence and murder toward the unborn child so this is not something that leaves a society unscathed is not something that doesn't have a, a profound effect on the mentality of people raised with this. So we have to be asking God's continued mercy for this. But in order to respond to such things, we have to have certain virtues. Now, as I mentioned to you before, uh, the virtues that uh, the pagans recognized were naturalistic virtues. They were they looked upon them as natural because they did not understand any relationship between God and man to be any more than merely an, a, a relationship of subservience, a relationship of servile fear towards the gods. And as St. Paul says, the gods of the Gentiles or the pagans are devils. So of course, what relationship would one expect humans to have with such things, overlords, as devils, fallen angels who wanted to be deified in the minds of men, worshipped by men, invoked by men? What kind of relationship was it possible to have with gods like that? Either mythology 
which brought them so close that the gods were nothing but superhuman sinners, is all they were. Or philosophy that put the gods so far away that uh, they almost became abstractions. So um, what was there possible that left the possibility of any relationship with Almighty God, with a, with a true God, the true God? So we have the pagans who uh, considered uh, prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance as the ultimate moral virtues because this is what life was about. Life was living a good life in this world and being admired by men. Uh, the most they could hope for is by living a heroic life and being numbered among the gods. <clears throat> uh, they therefore would consider fortitude to be the highest of the virtues. As I say, others temperance, some justice, <clears throat> and some actually prudence. But um, when it came to the time for Almighty God sending His Son into the world now, and telling us who God really is, and what our relationship to Him really is supposed to be, all of that changed. Now we not only had prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, but we had something above them. We had virtues virtues that went far beyond any human prudence or justice or fortitude temperance. We had what we know as not only the moral virtues that guide us in living a good life in this world, we had the theological virtues, the theological virtues above these moral virtues. The theological virtues being faith and hope and charity, starting with faith and then of course, hope and charity. Faith is the beginning because we know that faith enables us to know the truth of who God really is and who we really are. After all, if we're created in the image of God and by grace in the likeness of God, how can we know who we are unless we know who God is? We have to know who God is first before we can even know who we are. Creatures of God created to know him and to love him and to serve him in this world in his knowledge, in his, in his love, in his service in this world. That's what we're created for. How can we even know that unless we have faith? So uh, in order for a man to know himself, he has to know God, has to. Otherwise, he's sort of orphaned, orphaned. He's just a mortal offspring of a mortal sinful being like himself, hopeless, blind, wandering through a a very cruel world, a veil of tears, as we call it, right? But faith makes all the difference. So our Lord has brought faith to us, and uh, even as uh, Abraham and the Almighty God working through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Moses, the prophets, and so on of the Old Testament, gave us hope from the Garden of Gethsemane when God promised to send a Redeemer. Now there we had... There we had faith and hope provided for us, something to look forward to. But with the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord says, Philip, he who sees me sees the Father. And so God the Father revealed himself through the Son. And the Son then promises to send the Holy Ghost, and everything changes. Now we have, above all the virtues, faith, hope, and charity, this is what God wants to he wants these virtues wrought in us, you see. I mentioned that God needs to 
open in us the receptivity. So the, the gifts are receptive powers. They're receptive powers. Uh, you might think of a, a two-way, like a sending and receiving set. And, uh, you know, you can make a device that actually emits a signal. Uh, but if it can't, if it can transmit a signal but not receive a signal, it's all one way. But uh, we had cut the ties, as it were, by our sins, and God wants to restore the two-way communication. And he wants to restore the receptive powers in our soul to receive his graces, to receive the emissions of his sacred graces into our souls. And he wants then to give us the power to respond to that by, as it were, transmitting, by sending to him our response. And the response is not like the reception. The reception is passive. We receive it only. But the response is active. And that active response of ours to God's grace is precisely what I'm mentioning here, the virtues. So it's by, by cooperating with the grace of God, working in our minds, our intellects, working in our wills, our souls, working in our appetites, our, our irascible appetite, our sensible appetites. We get the grace of God working through our intelligence and our wills, even in our lower appetites, to bring them all back into order again. And we can restore that order by the grace of God. It's an active thing on our part that we do. That is what our Lord talks about in bringing forth the fruit, fruits of justice. It has some fruit to show for it. The tree is not barren. It actually brings forth something beautiful and useful. That's what our lives are supposed to be because of these virtues here. Now, if you look at the, at the limitations of the natural man, okay, the natural man being the, the, um, the pagan, the ancient pagans, their philosophers, and so on, looking at these virtues, how they saw them. Remember, natural has a connotation of being something very wholesome these days. It can be. But remember, when we talk about natural as Catholics, we're talking about nature as corrupted by sin, too. We're, talk we're talking about a human nature. But we're talking about a human nature that, is, that has been affected by sin. So it's now, cr it's now crippled and it's now deformed. And our, our intellects are darkened and our wills are weakened. And so rather than have the order of knowledge and truth dictating the will's understanding of what is right and good, and that then dictating to our appetites of our irascible appetites and our sensitive or our concupiscible appetites, rather than the order being in that dominion, now it's actually inverted. So now our animal appetites, as it were, run roughshod over our wills and bully our wills, and our will then goes directly and then commands that the intellect somehow justify what it's doing. And so the intellect now can be bullied, in a sense, by the will, which is bullied by our appetites, to give it what it wants. And so we start rationalizing, and uh, we start coming up with excuses and all the rest. We see it happen over and over and again in our lives and the lives of others. And we realize that there's something fundamentally wrong. I mean, even, well, even, even outright pagans understand there's something fundamentally wrong with human nature. 
Uh, there are all kinds of explanations for it, right? There are some say we evolved badly and we've got to take charge of our own evolution. Some say we have to remake humanity because obviously there's something wrong with it. Everybody is in agreement on that one fundamental point. There's something wrong with, human, with humanity. Some don't even believe there is a human nature. They just say there's a human condition that we all share and we all have to re react to that condition. And we're creating our humanity as we go along. Each and every one of us is kind of creating his own humanity. But there's no such thing as a human nature. But if you don't believe in God, how can you believe in a human nature? Because a God has to create a human nature that is common to us all. So you see things have really gone farther and farther down the slope into the swamp and into the pit, into the quicksand, um, into the abyss. <coughs> because of this rebellion against God, this lack of loss of self-control, this rebellion that leads to actually rejection of faith itself, even the fundamental truths of our own existence and God's existence. So we have a naturalistic attitude about what constitutes actual virtue. Um, now we can read definitions of the virtue of prudence uh, from the various philosophers. And all of the old philosophers, you know, were familiar with these virtues and familiar with the virtue of prudence. They gave a different ranks of importance and ordering them in terms of importance. But what St. Thomas did and St. Augustine before him was to zero in on one of these virtues in particular, which was of prime importance. In fact, uh, we have the power to think we have the power to know and, to, and we have the power to love. And uh, it is precisely in these powers that St. Augustine found the, uh, the natural image of God in us. Each and every single one of these, he said, resembles God not only as a divine, immortal spirit, but each one of us resembles Almighty God as a trinity of persons in one God. And that trinity of persons in one divine being consists of <coughs> our intellect and our will. And he said our memory. He said our memory with that permanence of the truths that we've learned, that memory is a reflection of God the Father. And he said from that we derive our thoughts, our concepts, and we conceive. Well, a concept, we, the very sense, sense of the word is to conceive something. And we talk about the body conceiving a child, but we talk about the mind conceiving a thought as a concept. And so um, St. Augustine understood that that was a reflection in us of God generating his son as his perfect self-knowledge, as his perfect self-expression. The Son of God is the perfect Word of God expressing Almighty God, the very nature the very uh, being of God is, is in the Son. And um, he is a separate, a, a distinct person by the infinite knowing power of God who generates him as his Son. And uh, so we also have the power of loving, which is the power um, of, again, appreciating what is, what is really good, and so the Father and the Son, actually, as two distinct persons now, have from all eternity loved each other with such a tremendous bond of love 
actually an infinite bond of love, that it generates a third person of that trinity. And this is reflected in you and me by our memories representing the Father and our intelligence representing the Son as the divine word of God and the Holy Ghost representing actually the love, actually personifying the love between the Father and the Son. And how long has this been so? As long as God has been God, as long as God has been knowing, as long as God has been loving, in other words, from all eternity. God has been a blessed eternity, necessarily so. Of necessity, it is so. That God is this blessed eternity of persons, reflected in us by these wonderful powers. So you'd expect that if God is going to restore the order in us that belongs there, he's going to work in these powers somehow. And the grace is going to be there. You know, we talk about virtues, and it, the word virtue, you know, comes from the Latin word virtus virtutis, meaning strength. It's not just a potentia. It's not just a potestas. It is a virtus. It is an actual strength. And strength has to inhere in something. Strength doesn't just stand alone as something substantial. It has to be part of something. It has to make something strong. And so virtue as strength has to be in something. And in, in us, it has to be in our minds. It has to be in our, in, our, in our intelligence. It has to be in our will. So you'd expect that God is going to work there by his grace in order to give us the strengths we need to pull everything back into the order that it must have to enable us to, to um, as it were, s snap out of it and to uh, pull ourselves together, in a sense, in a real, genuine sense of the word. Um, so that's where the graces of God are at work, primarily. In our minds, in our intelligence, in our will. That's where the graces are coming in order to do their work to produce these virtues that we need. So we have virtues that appeal to our intellect, or you might say that reside in our intelligence. And we must have also a virtue that applies to our will, our loving power. We, we even must have virtue that works within our appetites. This, the same appetites we share with the animals, unfortunately, that have kind of taken over control of us and get us into so much trouble and ruin everything. Just kind of poison our lives because they're not rational of themselves. They're irrational and they're selfish. Our concupiscible appetite that makes us desire pleasures, like animals, and uh, the irascible appetites that makes us angry that something that threatens us and offends us, like animals, okay? You want to see an irascible appetite? Get between a mother grizzly bear and her cub. You'll find an irascible appetite at work there very rapidly. Um, so we have these things within us, these, these faculties within us, as it were. And they're really disordered now. And that's the problem we have in all of our lives that just messes up our lives, separates us from God, even makes us, as I say, like these blind, wandering people wondering who we are and trying to, trying to find ourselves in this world. Well, we'll never find ourselves in this world because we're created for the next and because our souls are not material things that you can just discover. We have to enter into ourselves. We will not discover our souls out in the world there. So there, there is a poem written by a very famous poet. His name is Rudyard Kipling. 
And that poem is entitled, If. Now, many of you have seen this poem, I'm sure. And uh, it just has the title, If, with a hyphen after it, oddly enough. And uh, Rudyard Kipling, you know, is a poet of the 1800s. And uh, very well, in the early 1900s, actually, too. Um, and um, very famous, uh, wrote a number of things that have become quite well known, the, the, the Jungle Book and a variety of other works that he wrote. And he, he's very much into nature. And so he wrote the poem, If, to address the question of what makes you a man. And he expresses very, very well the natural man at his best. And uh, for those of you who have not read this poem, I'm going to read it for you now. It's not that long. But he describes what is in the eyes of the natural man. It is that makes a man a man, makes him manly. He says, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth, you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up again with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Yours is the earth and everything that is in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Now, Rudyard Kipling lost a son in World War I. Perhaps he wrote this to his son, about his son, maybe in honor of his son, I don't know. I'd have to look that up, but question, to ask you, as I'm reading what he's saying here about what makes a man a man, is there anything supernatural about this? Or is everything he's saying referring to life in this world, dealing with things in this world, 
responding and reacting to things of this world. As I look down the stanzas of this poem, I don't see anything about faith or hope or charity, anything about this. So it might have been written by a pagan hundreds of years before Christ. It could have been. It wasn't. But this is very much the natural man's way of looking at things. This is truly an admirable and individual who can do these things. As a matter of fact, you and I, if we were to meet someone like this, who, let's say, who, could, who fit the description of this poem, you and I would probably admire that person. But that wouldn't necessarily be a man of faith, not our faith or any other faith. It could be some who said, I will try to live up to these standards. I will try to do what Roger Tipton said. I will try to follow this as my ethical standard of life. But you notice as we read through this poem, you also see the virtues expressed, the virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance expressed here in this poem, even though we do not find any of the virtues of faith and hope and charity. That's why I say this is definitely the natural and naturalistic view of what it is that makes a man a man, that makes a man manly. It's an interesting poem, all right, and I think it's a very, very fine expression of what this means to be in the eyes of the world to be a man. But now, you see, this is all under attack, you see. Uh, and this is why it's so important for us to address this matter, especially at this juncture in the world's history, especially at this time of our lives. I mean, what is it that really makes a man a man? And why are we in this situation in terms of our society? And is it not because manhood has been under attack for years, decades, perhaps even centuries, and that we look around the world and we don't see men standing up and taking their proper places in their families, in their societies, in their countries, in their world. We don't see men taking the leadership as men. Even if we saw somebody taking the leadership, according to Rudyard Kipling, we would see the world would be a very different place. So it's not only that man has lost faith, he's lost himself. He's lost his manhood. Even his natural manhood he's lost. And how could it be otherwise? Because once he loses his connection with God, he loses track of his own nature. Now contrast this, contrast this with another, another, you might call it a poem, a sort of poem, not exactly in the same form, or this form of a po poetry, but it also begins with the word if, and it is a translation. It is a translation from ancient Greek, it comes down to us from a man whose name was Saul. And yet he was converted, and he definitely came to understand that the ultimate virtues were the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And so we read from St. Paul these words, and you'll recognize them immediately, and you know exactly where to find them. If, he says, if is where he starts. 
Same as Rudyard Kipling. Same as Rudyard Kipling. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I have become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And if I should have prophecy and should know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I should have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And if I should distribute all my goods to feed the poor, and if I should deliver my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity is patient, is kind. Charity envieth not, dealeth not perversely, is not puffed up, is not ambitious, seeketh not her own, is not provoked to anger, thinketh no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices with the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never falleth away, whether prophecy shall be made void, or tongue shall cease, or knowledge shall be destroyed. For we know in part, and we prophecy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away the things of a child. We see now through a glass in a dark manner, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now there remain faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. You see the difference here. Clearly, St. Paul is talking about not only prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance. He's talking about virtues that go beyond these. He's not denying the four moral virtues. He's saying these four moral virtues are not adequate unto themselves. They need more. They need more. And he even goes so far as to, in a sense, liken the, the moral virtues without faith and without hope and without charity. In other words, to liken the natural man to a child. He was like a child trying to figure things out for himself. And he says, I put away the things of a child, he said. When I was a child, I thought and I understood and I spoke as a child, he said. But now I put away these things, and now I see faith, hope, and charity are ultimately the virtues that we have to apply in life. So we see that with the revelation of our Lord, we've gone far beyond, far beyond the musings of the pagan philosophers and the idea that we create our own humanity by flexing our wills, in making ourselves, because there's no one else to create us for the atheist, so we're left to create ourselves by making ourselves just and temperate, prudent, strong and brave, and this is all there is, you see. You know, St. Thomas said that of these seven virtues, Prudence, justice, uh, rather, faith, hope, charity, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. <clears throat> the three top ones being theological, the four lower ones being the moral virtues, putting into practice. If you have faith and hope and charity, you actually put them into practice by moral, the moral virtues. In other words, when you have faith, hope, and charity, and you live prudent, and a just and a brave 
and a temperate life, your prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance are at the service of faith, hope, and charity. That's how you live out as intense. That's how you actually live out your faith and your hope and your charity. That's why they're called moral virtues, because the moral virtues, well, they have to do with mores, and mores means your behavior. You're going to have faith, hope, and charity, but the further question is, how do you actually apply those in your life? How do you actually act because of your faith and your hope and charity? Well, when we're talking about action now, we're talking about these moral virtues. The moral virtues that are so named because they involve our actual behavior, the way we conduct ourselves in this world. The word prudence appears in English, in the English translation of the Bible, 39 times. It's a little difficult, though, to say that, because in our Douay Reims translations, we find that there are other words that are associated with prudence, I mean, wisdom, understanding, and so on. These words also, in Greek, kind of have very common overlapping meanings because they actually go together. They're related to each other. But we've translated in the Douay Reims Bible the word, it's phronesis, phronesis, as prudence. And um, it occurs only 39 times. But of those, two-thirds of the time are in one book of the Bible. And that's the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs actually contrasts what the prudent man does and what the foolish man does. And you read through the book of Proverbs after the book of Psalms, and you read, this is what the prudent man does, this is what the wise man does, this is what the man who has understanding does, and this is what the foolish man does, this is what the wasteful does. And it contrasts them saying after saying after saying. It shows this is what the one does and this is what the other does. And this is why their lives go the way they do. So, we understand that in the Book of Wisdom, God is trying to tell us exactly how we are to live a prudent life and how important it is. Um, we'll come back to the actual virtue of prudence itself in a moment, but it's important to realize first how important it is and why St. Thomas says after faith, hope, and charity it's the most important virtue of all that given a man has faith and hope and charity the next thing he needs is the virtue of prudence St. Thomas says so much so that if he doesn't have the virtue of prudence he cannot have the virtue of justice if he, cannot, if he doesn't have the virtue of prudence, he cannot have the virtue of fortitude or the virtue of temperance. So St. Thomas makes this like a, a hinge, and actually these virtues are called that. They're called cardinal virtues, because all of the other virtues that follow are somehow contained within them, somehow contained within prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. 
But he makes it very clear that without the virtue of prudence, you cannot be just, you cannot be strong and brave, and you cannot be temperate. You've got to have the virtue of temperance. That's the importance he places upon it. In fact, we talked about virtues giving strength to our intelligence, to our wills, to our appetites. Well, prudence is the virtue in our intelligence. It's the start. Like faith is the beginning of truth, supernatural truth in the mind, so it is with prudence is the beginning of the moral life. It starts here. It starts in our intelligence. Prudence has to inform our intelligence in order to accomplish anything in us. It is an intellectual virtue. But everything follows from it. We'll explain why. So what does, what does uh, the virtue of, of prudence mean in the book of Proverbs? I mean, we're talking divine revelation here. Remember, prudence, counsel, understanding, wisdom, they all, to some extent, are interchangeable. To some extent, they all cover very much the same ground, but they have a relationship among them. They're not exactly all the same. But here are a few things we read in the book of Proverbs. We read here, for I will speak of great things. This is from Proverbs chapter 8, verse 6. Here, for I will speak of great things, and my lips shall be open to preach right things. My mouth shall meditate truth, and my lips shall hate wickedness. All my words are just. There is nothing wicked or perverse in them. They are right to them that understand, and just to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not money, choose knowledge rather than gold. For wisdom is better than all the most precious things, and whatsoever it may be desired cannot be compared to it. I, wisdom, dwell in counsel, and I am present in learned thoughts. The fear of the Lord hateth evil. I hate arrogance and pride, and every wicked way, and a mouth with a double tongue. Counsel and equity is mine. Prudence, prudence is mine. Strength is mine. Well, there you find counsel and prudence and strength, courage. All these things brought together under the heading of wisdom. By me, princes rule and the mighty decree justice. I love them that love me and they that in the morning early watch for me shall find me. With me are riches and glory, glorious riches and justice. For my fruit is better than gold and the precious stone, and my blossoms than choice silver. I walk in the way of justice, in the midst of the paths of judgment. So, you see, already they're relating to you, uh, in the book of Proverbs, a connection between the concept of prudence and the gifts, fear of the Lord, he mentions, he mentions counsel. He mentions understanding. These are all gifts of God, gifts of the Holy Ghost. But he's also mentioning justice and fortitude and temperance as being connected with prudence too. If we take those seven virtues, as I mentioned before, we find prudence is right in the middle of the th between the three theological virtues and the three moral virtues that follow it. And there's a good reason for that. This is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 12. 
He that loveth correction loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is foolish. He that is good shall draw grace from the, from the Lord, but he that trusteth in his own devices doth wickedly. He that tilleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that pursueth idleness is very foolish. He that is delighted in passing his time over wine leaveth a reproach in his strongholds. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that is wise hearkeneth unto counsels. A fool immediately showeth his anger, but he that dissembleth injuries is wise. A cautious man concealeth knowledge, and the heart of fools publishes folly. And Proverbs 14, a wise, now it's not only men who can be prudent, but women must be prudent too. In fact, the very last chapter of the book of Proverbs is devoted to the valiant woman who acts prudently on behalf of her family and what a treasure she is. And so again, I mean, prudence is held up as a great virtue in a woman too. You know, a man who marries a woman who is imprudent essentially marries a fool. We associate imprudence with, with being foolish and, and acting foolishly and sometimes being a fool. So the difference between the wise man and the foolish man often comes down to that. Matter of, it's a matter of prudence. A scorner seeketh wisdom, and findeth it not. The learning of the wise is easy. Go against a foolish man, and he knoweth not the lips of prudence. The wisdom of a discreet man is to understand his way, and the imprudence of the foolish one errs. The discreet man considers his steps. The innocent takes counsel in every word. A wise man fears and declines from evil. The fool leaps forward and is overconfident. The impatient man shall work folly, and the, the thoughtful man, the crafty man, the crafty man is hateful, having to do with actually being, uh, shall we say, clever in his own conceits, as St. Paul would say. The childish man shall possess folly, and the prudent man shall look for knowledge. The crown of the wise is their riches, so they think. The folly of fools is their imprudence. He that is patient is governed with much wisdom. The word governed is very important there, because that's the role of prudence. Prudence is what enables you to govern yourself. We'll talk about that in a moment. What is this prudence we're talking about here? The word governed there is very significant because that's exactly the role of justice, or prudence rather, I'm sorry, that enables you to govern yourself. Even your justice and your bravery and your temperance have to be governed. In the heart of the prudent rests wisdom. And it shall construct, and it shall instruct all the ignorant. And he goes on. Actually, the uh, the book of Proverbs goes on and says, "Justice exalteth a nation, but sin maketh nations miserable." Well, we can certainly vouch for that. 
We've seen it happen in our own nation, right? Justice exalts a nation, but sin makes nations miserable. That's the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 34. How true that is. And we come to the book of Proverbs, chapter 22. The prudent man saw the evil and withdrew himself from it, hid himself. The simple-minded man passed on and suffered the loss. Again, because of his lack of prudence, he was subject to evil. And uh, the book of Proverbs chapter 22 goes on, Incline thy ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply thy heart to my doctrine, which shall be beautiful for thee, if thou keep it in thy heart, and it shall flow in thy lips, that thy trust may be in the Lord. Wherefore, I have also shown it to thee this day. Behold, I have described it to thee, three manners of ways in thoughts and knowledge. And so in this chapter of the book of Proverbs, he tells us we find in the love and the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God, we find true wisdom. And in wisdom, we find prudence. The prudent man, we read over and over again, is one who seeks counsel from the wise and is humble enough not to trust in himself. The foolish man has all the confidence in himself and is constantly getting into trouble because he cannot take advice from those who are wiser than he. He's too proud. His pride blinds him. And so it is over and over again we read in the book of Proverbs that this is what we're dealing with. So in the Old Testament we do have these words that are given to us. And you know, we see this prudence exercised in the life of our Lord. We see our Lord himself exercising the virtue of prudence. Uh, our Lord, in the course of his own lifetime, has to exercise prudence with everything he does. We see this in his public life. We see the times that he is silent, when he will not answer. And there are the times, of course, when he does answer. We see him being targeted for uh, accusations and finally uh, for condemnation by his enemies. And we see our Lord time and time again responding to them, not just in a clever way, because the fool can be clever the problem is, he's being clever for the wrong reasons. He's not being prudent because prudence requires true knowledge and a knowledge of God, faith. True prudence requires actual faith. And so the clever man can mock prudence, as it were, mimic prudence. And that's how it is often in the entertainment today. In the entertainment world today, they may make movies about crimes. And in the, in the course of the movie, you see the criminals are very, very clever. 
The criminals are portrayed as being very, very clever, so much so that people actually can begin to admire them for how smart they are. They're really, really sharp. They really know how to make things happen, really know how to get their way. They can plant out these most elaborate, intricate crimes and carry them out successfully. They're very, very, very sharp. But you know, none of that has to do with prudence. It is all mere cleverness is all it is. They know how to do something bad and carry it out in a clever way. But that's what St. Thomas says is a false or imposter prudence. It is like the height of imprudence. I mean, if someone has a bad purpose and he's not very bright and so he finds himself being frustrated in carrying out his bad purpose, often his bad purpose comes to nothing and he never succeeds. It's actually worse if you have a clever man who sets himself to a bad or evil purpose and is clever enough to pull it off. And the more the cleverer he is, the more damage he can do. History is full of people who are very, very clever, but not intelligent. They knew how to do evil things in a very, very clever way. They knew how to get their way. They knew how to manipulate nature. I mean, reason is, as we're told by the philosophers I mentioned before, the understanding of things in their causes. And you can be very clever and, by reasoning, understand things in your causes, and so you can make things happen the way you want by manipulating those causes. And all of that is a matter of reason, okay? But if it's reason applied to a bad end, then your very reason becomes unreasonable. It's like irrational reason. It's even like anti-rational reason. Men like Stalin and Hitler and Mao Zedong and all these monsters of history were very, very clever men. And they were very reasonable in their own way. But they were completely irrational and anti-rational in their ultimate goals and ends and purposes for which they acted. They devoted their lives to destruction. And this is exactly what they wrought in the world. And that's why, by so many, they're dreaded and even hated. Because of the harm that they did by being so clever. And so it is that you find a very clever fool, seems to be an oxymoron, a clever fool. But unfortunately, when you have someone who's very clever, who sets about some evil purpose, that's what you have. And the world seems to be full of those today. Now, on the other hand, the example that our Lord has set for us kind of epitomizes what St. Paul says when he talks about how we have to be circumspect including prudent, because the times are evil, because we live in evil times. All the more reason why we have to be, as our Lord said, shrewd as serpents and clever, and rather clever as serpents, excuse me, or shrewd as serpents, cleverness, whatever, 
but also guileless as doves. So the part about being guileless as doves means we have to be innocent in our intentions and not be conniving and planning evil things. But in the process of our, of our innocence, we have to be very careful. And that carefulness, that cautiousness, is all part of prudence. And so our Lord tells us we must be that way. But he sets the example himself. As you read through the Gospels, you see how our Lord is very cautious with every step. When he's being questioned publicly by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, who are trying over and over again to trap him, you see how our Lord so easily parries the blow with a few words here and there. And so once it happened that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees actually took turns one after another, posing these things, these challenges to our Lord. It's like they were all together in one place, and they had all conspired to say, let's get him. And one took a shot and did not fare very well. And the next one was ready right there with another shot, and he didn't fare very well. And finally, the third took the shot, and of course, none of them succeeded. The reason why they didn't succeed, the reason why then they decided, it says, not to confront him with any more questions is because by our Lord's prudence, he knew exactly what to say and he knew exactly how to say it in such a way that it not only showed the error of their ways and how deceitful they were and dishonest they were, but it also showed very clearly the truth of what our Lord was saying. It was masterful. And that masterfulness of our Lord was a result of his prudence. We'll see why when we look at the virtue of prudence itself. But our Lord tells us that we also must be prudent in the way we address these things in our own lives because, again, we're dealing with a world at a time that is, well, he says, evil. So we've got to keep a little track of the time, by the way. And, of course, you'll notice that uh, often I... Uh, have my eyes closed or half closed and I mention again for those who are kind of new to us that uh, I um, have a um, little problem with my eyes kind of going crossed and I feel like they're kind of crossing over uh, every now and then if you're serving mass for me at the altar or even if you're in the pew those of you who can see farther better might see that I've got one eye closed when I'm reading at the missile, and the reason is because uh, I might begin to stumble, and I, I find the reason is because an eye is wandering, maybe they're both wandering, and so the whole text is kind of wandering over itself and uh, confusing itself. So I find that in order to be able to actually see more clearly, if I close one eye, I can just see more clearly what I'm reading here. And I find the same thing happens sometimes when I'm uh, talking with the pulpit or here, uh, that I feel my eyes are actually like converging. And uh, I think that could be a little bit uh, um, distracting for those who are watching my eyes go crossed. And so maybe prudently I, I close my eyes, at least one of them, in order to spare you that. 
<laughs> now your eyes might be going cross too, but it might be due to fatigue, I don't know. So maybe it's best that I close my eyes so I don't see your eyes going cross either. Either way, hopefully it's, there's some good purpose for it. But you see, everything that our Lord taught, including what he enjoins on us, as far as prudence has to do with the end, you know? You see, prudence has to be ordered to the end. And what makes prudence good or bad, true prudence or false prudence, is the purpose for which one is acting. Why is one being prudent? Why is one applying his mind to accomplish something? Is it for some good thing or some bad thing? And if it's a bad thing, then clearly that's not prudence at all. It's not a virtue that applies itself to accomplishing something evil. Now, the pagans wanted to have a naturally good life in this world. Is that a bad thing? In itself, it's not a bad thing. They didn't have faith or hope or charity. This life was, as far as they were concerned, all that they had. And so, naturally speaking, that was a good end. So it was not bad for them to say, I will live my life prudently for this purpose. But now that we have a world that is saved, redeemed by, by Christ himself, and our Lord has taught us that there are higher virtues and there's a higher purpose to human life than just survival and getting by day to day more or less contentedly in this world. And that's all we have to live for. Like any dog or cat, just getting its dish filled once a day, going for a walk, and then we sleep, and that's the rest, that's all that matters. There's more to us than that. I would hope that people would come to understand that and realize that. Um, that there is the ultimate purpose of everlasting life. Now, if you really want to have the virtue of prudence, it has to be basically animated by that faith, by that knowledge of a Savior of who our God is, and that he offers us a share in his own divine life in heaven. And this is what real human happiness is, and this is what human life is for. So if you really want to have the virtue of prudence, according to St. Thomas and the other fathers of the Church, you have to have faith. That is what has to animate your virtues, because they're all being done for that purpose. So for us now, we know that the ultimate purpose is everlasting life. And so the question that we face is, when it comes down to the virtue of prudence, is, well, how do we get that? How do we actually succeed in getting it? Because, okay, I have my faith, tells me what I'm, I, I believe is the truth, and I believe in that. I believe uh, that I'm a creature of Almighty God, who, who know me and love me and created me to know him and love him and serve him in this world, but to be happy with him in the next. I believe that. I place my hope in that because I trust that he's, he's honorable, he's true, he will keep his word, and I will be faithful to him because, with that confidence that he will be faithful to his word and virtue of hope. And I have the virtue of charity, which means I love him because he is my ultimate good. And so, with all of that in mind, now I'm going to apply myself to actually accomplish this. And that's where the virtue of prudence come in, comes in. How do I apply that to my actual life, day by day? And uh, so there are those who actually approached our Lord with that question. 
There are those who came to our Lord and said to him, Master, Lord, Rabbi, Teacher, what must I do to have everlasting life? The Gospel tells us this. The Gospel of St. Matthew, the Gospel of St. Mark, the Gospel of St. Luke portray these events. Someone coming to our Lord and asking him precisely that question. What must I do to have everlasting life? And our Lord's response is very interesting, actually, and it tells us what we need to know. Um, in fact, one of those who came to our Lord was an adversary to challenge him, actually, on the subject. Uh, we find this in St. Matthew chapter 19, St. Luke chapter 18, uh, St. Mark chapter 10, and uh, also St. Luke chapter 10, and so on and so forth. We had, find them all raising that same question about everlasting life. For example, we have here in St. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, of chapter 19, And behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good shall I do, that I may have life everlasting? Who said to him, Why askest thou me concerning good? One is good, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which? And Jesus said, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man saith to him, All these I have kept from my youth. What is yet wanting to me? That's when our Lord saw that he was very genuine, of course, and he said, Well, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. What an invitation that was. In a sense, it's what he invited the apostles to do. And they did it. And he was asking this young man if he would do the same. Uh, almost asking him if he would again join the ranks of the apostles. But the rich young man walked away sadly because he was very attached to the world and was very reluctant to give it up. Our Lord watched him go sadly away, but he didn't stop him. He just talked then about how those who are attached to the things of the world will have a terrible time saving their souls. Uh, Catholic tradition tells us this rich young man was none other than, than Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. Uh, and that young man did, in fact, at the, after the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord, did, in fact, leave all things behind. And because of his faith in our Lord, was condemned to die with his sisters, and they were cast adrift in the Mediterranean Sea. And by providence, they washed up on the shores of what is now France, in the area of Provence, where there's a long tradition of the presence of Mary and Martha living among them, in a sense as, as hermits. And Lazarus himself went on to become, in fact, one of the bishops of the early church. So if it was our Lazarus who came to our Lord that day, and our Lord said to him, Go sell what you have and come follow me, eventually this rich young man did, did just that. And by becoming a bishop, he became one of the successors of the apostles. But this is the voice of the church going very far back in her history, talking about the ultimate outcome of this, this question 
suppose. But you see, with the question in mind uh, was precisely this. What must I do to have everlasting life? That's the fundamental question that it should be, each and every one of us should be asking. That's the fundamental question that should concern us right now. What must I have to do to have everlasting life? You know, in, in Matthew, in St. John's Gospel, chapter 6, our Lord told us that he would give us his body and blood to eat and to drink. And hundreds, maybe thousands, walked away from him. And our Lord invited the apostles to go also. He didn't chase after them either and stop them any more than he stopped the rich young man from walking away. But Peter answered Jesus' invitation for the apostles to walk away by saying, Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. To whom else, to whom else shall we go? The sense of the words of Peter was, you're the only one who has promised everlasting life. Why would we go to anyone else who cannot promise that? What promise could possibly compare with that? What other promise is of any value other than in light of that everlasting life? So that's the sense of what Peter answered was, you, Lord, you're the ones who have offered to do this, and we believe in you. And with that, they, yes, the apostles even believed that somehow our Lord was going to give them his body and blood to eat and drink. And they would not abandon him, although Judas decided then to betray him, as you know, possibly then and there. And again, we see this repeated in the Gospels. And when he was gone forth into the way, a certain man running up and kneeling before him. This gives us a few more details. A certain man running up to him and kneeling down before him asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may receive life everlasting? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? None is good but one, and that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not f commit fraud. Do not honor, uh, rather honor thy father and thy mother. And so again, our Lord repeated the commandments that they one had to keep. And the young, the man here, kneeling in, at our Lord's feet, said, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, looking on him, loved him and said to him, One thing is wanting, go sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. That's one thing that still remains. So what our Lord makes it very clear is that what is necessary to have everlasting life, what is necessary to live and die in the state of God's grace, so that your whole, your soul is holy and pleasing to God, that you are not only a friend of God, but a child of God, what is necessary here to have the life of God in your soul by sanctifying grace is that you love him most of all. And this is exactly what I was talking about before. Why? You don't have to love God perfectly. You know, our Lord said that the great, first great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and thy whole mind and thy whole soul and all thy strength, with all your power of loving. Do you have to love God this way to be saved? Our Lord says no. Our Lord says no. Do you have to love God that way to enter heaven? Yes, you do. But to be saved, 
See, this allows all the room we need for purgatory. To be saved, you don't need to love God perfectly, but you just need to love him most of all. And why is that? Well, because if you love God most of all, then whenever there is a temptation forcing you, as it were, to choose between your love for God or your love for this thing, you don't have to love God perfectly to make the right choice. You just have to love him most of all. If I love God more than anything else that he's created, then when there's a choice, I will always choose him. I will always choose him as the greater love of my soul. And that's all that's necessary to remain in the state of grace, to love him at least most of all, if not with all my heart and soul. I love him at least more than anything else he's made. My allegiance is to him, and my choice will always be him first. Of course, that love with which one dies in that state has to be purified for heaven so that we then can love him with all of our heart and soul. And that's what purgatory is for, too. Expiating of fulfilling the temporal punishment due to sin, but purifying our love for God and making it, well, preparing it for the divine embrace of heaven and making it perfect. You know. But you don't have to be perfect to be saved. That's very comforting, actually. I think it should be. You know. So this was the real concern. And that's why our Lord says, Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents, but simple as doves. Be as innocent as a dove. But also be very, very smart in terms of how you live your life. As our Lord himself set that example before you, when the times were evil, and how it was that he had to conduct himself in this world. You know, uh, our Lord also talked about the need for prudence when he, for example, talked about building the tower. He said, For which of you, having a mind to build a tower, did not first sit down and reckon the charges that are necessary, whether he have the wherewithal to finish it? So again, he's saying, figure out what you need. Use your intelligence, figure out what you need to accomplish your good purpose. So again, we get back to the idea of prudence as being a sort of practical wisdom or a practical reason applied to what is to be done. In other words, I know what I want to accomplish. I want to be faithful to God. I want to keep his commandments. I want to live a good life in terms of my love for him. And so how do I do that? Well, he gave me the intelligence to figure out how to do that. So, in any case, um, I think you get the idea. I don't have to go and, and uh, give you example after example. But the example of our Lord's life is, a, is really the prime example. But I want to then, with that in mind, uh, turn attention to uh, what the virtue of prudence is and how the virtue of prudence was lived by the saints to give you a kind of a practical idea of how we're supposed to live prudence ourselves, how we're supposed to carry it out. So our justice and our, our fortitude and our temperance can actually be true and not just mythical or just mirages, fooling us, deceiving us into thinking of ourselves 
as just and brave and temperate individuals, while we lack the virtue of prudence. We have to pray for this grace from God, grace of prudence, in order to know how to live our lives. So anyway, that's what we're going to be covering next. By the way, there are two practical applications of this idea. You know, prudence, as you're getting the idea, is a directive virtue that actually guides our justice and guides our fortitude and guides our, our temperance. It's a directive virtue that governs our justice and our fortitude and our temperance. And so it's something that brings them into line with right reason and how we are to actually conduct ourselves and carry out these things. It's very, very important because the virtues of justice and temperance and fortitude can be excessive or defective and they can go into excess or defect and that's where they need to be governed by prudence to make them true and real. I do um, ask you to uh, apply to that idea of the prudent thing. The prudent thing is using the means that God has given us in order to accomplish the purpose of the salvation of our souls. And I'm going to be going into a little bit of detail on this question, especially in two areas, two things that God has given to us and how they apply to us prudently living our lives. And the one thing is our Lord present in the Blessed Sacrament, that this is the great gift that he's given to us and what the virtue of prudence would tell us as far as following our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. The idea then of our prayer, prudent, what would prudence require of us if we really intended to save our souls? And how would we apply ourselves to our prayers then? What would it mean to us? What would it look like if we prayed as we should? And thirdly, the th question of the angels. Another of the gifts that God has given to us is the angels, especially our guardian angels. And I thought we could take a look at how prudence itself then, knowing what it is and how we actually put it to work for us, how we apply it to ourselves, would lead us to a greater love of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, a greater love for prayer, to be with our Lord in prayer, and a greater appreciation for our guardian angels. So we'll be talking about that next. <laughs>